Hello, and welcome to The Undercurrent Season 11, Episode 3. For the past week, we in the Midwest have been experiencing extreme cold temperatures due to the polar vortex. Am I right, folks? Pretty chilly out there, huh? And also, us students got a little bit of a break. MSU closed school twice this week. Pretty incredible to me. I didn't expect that one. On my day off, I walked to Rite Aid and bought some cat food for my cat and some Doritos and went back home. Had a very nice time. And I hope you had a nice time, too. It's pretty unusual for MSU to close school. It's happened like less than 10 times. Reporter Sophie Sagan actually talked to some MSU alumni who were there in the past, like way far back in the 70s and stuff, during some of those rare snow days. And you get to hear from them right now. Here's her story. So I won't harp on this. If you were awake the past couple of days, you know that a polar vortex swept through the Midwest and Northeast this week. Businesses, government agencies, and schools closed their doors, and residents stayed safe and warm at home, drinking hot chocolate and avoiding the frigid air. In Lansing, Mayor Shore declared a snow emergency, and in East Lansing, Michigan State University suspended class for the seventh time in its history. As a student, I enjoyed my days off just as much as the next person. In the grand scheme of things, only a handful of Michigan State alumni will have memories of experiencing a snow day here. In the 70s, Michigan State canceled class three times, once in April of 1975 and two days in a row in January of 1978. Herb Gillis was a sophomore in 1975 and remembers the heavy snowfall. Ellen Gale and Gary Hernbroth were both living on campus during the blizzard of 1978. This year, 2019, students received a handful of emails and text alerts urging them to stay indoors to avoid frostbite. But in 1975 and 78, students received no such warning and ventured out, making the most of their day or days off. Here are the tales of Michigan State snow days as remembered by Ellen, Gary, and Herb. Gary Hernbroth, a proud MSU grad uh, from the College of Business and the School of Hospitality Business, and I graduated in 1979. My name is uh, Herb Gillis. I'm an attorney here in Dallas, Texas currently. Been down here in Dallas since 1981. I'm a 77 graduate, June 77 graduate of Michigan State University undergrad and graduated from law school in 1981 from Detroit College of Law, which is now part of, coincidentally, Michigan State University. My name is Ellen Gale, and I'm a speech-language pathologist. I went to undergrad at Michigan State, so I was there uh, for the blizzard of 1978. MSU was a nice distance. I grew up in Chelsea, and it was a nice distance from home. It got me out of the house, but yet I was close enough to be able to um, go back and forth when I needed to. Yeah, it's just far enough. You can be independent. And <laughs> My counselor turned me on to Michigan State's Hospitality School, and I said, well, that sounds interesting. It's combining business and hospitality, and I think that that's a good combo for me, and the, the, place, the place to go would be Michigan State. I, I wanted to stay in the state and go to a Big Ten school and, and all that, so uh, you know, I kind of morphed into, into, my, uh, into my Spartan role. Great school, great reputation. Uh, I wanted to be part of a Big Ten school with uh, college athletics, and uh, they also had an excellent uh, pre-law program in history, which was my main focus at that time. I went there from my sophomore through senior year, and I lived all three of those years in Hubbard Hall. I lived in McDonald Hall. I was in Acres during the snowstorm. 
I, I attended uh, the sporting events. Although I went to football games, and do you know because I was there during the Magic Johnson Championship year, my mates and I, uh, we could never get tickets to the games. It was always sold out, and uh, we decided to watch them. You know, they always watched the, uh, they always had the game watch. Oh, I won't call them parties, but they had the games on in some of the lecture halls on big, big movie screens. So we did a lot of that. Of course, that was a very special year. Well, on Wednesday evenings, it was a big tradition of. MSU Hubbard second floor to trek over to the Coral Gables, which in those days had live bands and drink specials. And and on that evening, on the April 2nd of 75, we went over there and there was a little bit of snow on the ground. And it was snowing. We got into the bar and then after a couple hours we trekked home. The snow had been maybe on our ankles on the way there. On the way back, the snow was more towards our knees. Yes, yes. I was living in McDonald, and it, it came in like a gangbuster. So, anyway, we made, we made it back to the dorm, went to sleep, and then the next morning, I decided since there had been a lot of snow, I was going to get up late and miss, blow off my, my 9 o'clock class, so I was planning on sleeping until my second class started. About 8.30 in the morning in my dorm, I got a knock on the door, I opened the door, and one of the residents from down the hall in Hubbard's second floor uh, asked me, he said, well, do you have some money to, we're collecting for a keg? Now, I want you to remember the drinking age was 18 at that time. And at that time, now, the drinking age in Michigan was 18. In 1975, the drinking age was 18 years old, and so I was, of course, 18. So those of us that were um, born in the spring or whatever, we were already 18. And, you know, half the campus was probably 18. Right. It was all legit. We made our way to town and laid in a little supply of brandy and probably some other things. I just remember the brandy because that's when I learned I really don't like brandy. Um, that there were a lot of other kids there who were buying kegs of beer. And it was amazing. We couldn't make it to class, but you could make it to town to roll a keg of beer back um, to enjoy the rest of the day. <laughs> And I said, a keg? It's 9 in the morning on Thursday. What's, what's, what's going on? He goes, didn't you hear? School has been closed for the first time in history. I do remember a cheer going up when, when uh, we were in the cafeteria that morning, I think having breakfast, and somebody had heard on, on the, maybe it was your radio station or something, that classes had been canceled or they made an announcement in the PA or something. I don't know. But everybody starts cheering. So, hey, what, what a Friday, right? We played... Uh, Euchre all day in the hallway and drank beer and celebrated the closing of school. And I think there was some snow football that we did and um... played. You know, I've mentioned the the snow football games out in front of McDonald. We did. We didn't throw the girls down the drifts quite with the energy we threw some of those guys down. You know, because there was that that testosterone thing about yeah, yeah, you know. And uh, but oh yeah, there were shenanigans. I mean, people were throwing snowballs and, and, and throwing snow down your back and all kinds of stuff. And cripe, you could barely even catch catch or touch the ball. It was all covered with ice and snow. But you know, you weren't there to really play. You know, my college roommate uh, in '75. He was one of the participants playing euchre and drinking beer uh, at when the blizzard party occurred during that. The great blizzard of 78 when they canceled school he was partying with his fellow fraternity brothers and uh, I guess 
they decided to go on their overhang there and there was a big snow drift and they jumped he jumped into the snow drift but it turned out it was very light and he broke his ankle. The best part for me was um at the time there was no Wharton Center, it was just at the auditorium and we had a touring group of uh, my fair lady. And so they were also snowed in in East Lansing. So they put on a free performance that night of My Fair Lady, which was really cool. So we all just, you couldn't walk on sidewalks because they were all covered, so we're all like walking down the middle of the road to get to the auditorium. You know, there's always cliques in school, right? You know, you've got your jocks, and we had had our band kids, and we had, you know, everybody kind of mixing and melding and blending, and you had your, your city kids and your country kids and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it takes a little while for walls to break down and, and for people to become friendly. And we live on the same floor, and you have a softball team or something like that on the floor or, or dorm parties on the floor. You know, you tend to get to know other people fairly well. But that, that snowstorm really did bring people together in a, in a way that hadn't maybe before um, and even break down walls more because you were all pitching in. I mean, everybody was getting their heaviest clothes on, and they were pitching in. And, you know, we went out to, to clear off some of these cars and to help, you know, these few uh, misguided people, if you will, who thought they were going to get off campus and go home. There really wasn't anything else to do. And uh, we were all kind of giddy about the, the closure of the school, so we would rather do that than stay inside and, you know, do homework. Why would you do that? You know, so after that, I think everybody was a little bit more uh, familiar with each other and maybe a little more friendly to each other. And, uh some of the some of the clicks kind of broke down a little bit because you were you know we were all in this snowstorm together and we had to make fun or, or get by with each other as best we could so i look back now and i go yeah we all pulled together and and it was it was it's funny how people do that when they're faced with the, with a with a uh with a common circumstance i think that's a lesson that i would take from that is we were all faced with that common circumstance and you know we, we got along Welcome back to The Undercurrent. This is Season 11, Episode 3. I think we'll call it Snowy Dark Nights, because that's what I'm thinking about. The nighttime during the polar vortex was kind of horrifying. A, uh, wasteland, if you will. But anyway, I've been thinking about the snow, and I've been thinking about the darkness, and it reminded me of one of my favorite episodes of The Undercurrent. An old one where Daniel Rizel, an ex-host of this very show, spins a long tale about a very famous blackout, and its connection to Bob Dylan one of his personal favorite musicians. I'd just like to play that episode again. It's called In the Dark. Enjoy. From WDBM East Lansing, this is The Undercurrent. I am your host, Daniel Rizel. Winter break just wrapped up here at Michigan State University, which means we just passed the darkest day of the year in December, which also means that here on out, the days only get brighter. But our show today brings stories from in the dark, both literally and figuratively. To open a student running an Asian Pacific American organization and the daughter of two refugees. If you really think about it, like my parents, uh, they had nowhere to go. Like our people were threatened for genocide. And you know, when you're in that situation, it's very scary. And you don't, it's like, you know, you're desperate for help. We'll also go back to 1965, when millions of people were left without power at the start of winter. Police ordered anti-aircraft searchlights set up to flood Grand Central Station, Times Square, and other parts of New York, 
moving from building to building at a 45-degree angle, trying to spot any possible looters. Stay tuned. This is The Undercurrent. You're tuned in to MSU Student Radio. It's our weekly news and storytelling program, The Undercurrent. And I'm Dano Rizel. It's our season five opener today, and we're going in the dark to share a couple stories. This first one was produced by Cole Tunningley, our reporter and assistant news director. I met my interviewee through Nina Rao, a coworker of mine. We met up in the basement of Shaw Hall, which resulted in some unfortunate background noise. However, the interview went well. Before we start, I should explain that the Hmong are an ethnic group from Vietnam, Laos, Thailand, and China. My interviewee was born in the U.S., but her parents are Hmong refugees. Hello, my name is Sarah Vang. I am a junior studying public policy and minoring in Asian Pacific American Studies. Um, And currently, I am one of the co-presidents for APASO, which stands for the Asian Pacific American Student Organization. So essentially, APASO, we are an organization that um, does our best to represent the needs and, you know, and the needs and address the concerns that Asian Pacific American students may have on campus. So yeah, a lot of that um, we do, because of that, we do a lot of programming um, involved that. So like that includes like hosting dialogues and like um, hosting just workshops that are educational to help spread awareness about like, you know, APA needs and issues. I am a very proud daughter uh, of two refugees. I want people to know that first and foremost, that just because my parents are refugees, uh, I'm, I'm proud of them, you know. Um, for I know like in today's political and social climate like there's this um you know issue topic about like immigration and you know letting like refugees into our country but if you really think about it like my parents uh, they had nowhere to go like our people were threatened for genocide and you know when you're in that situation it's very scary and you don't it's like you know you're desperate for help um I know my parents could, <laughs> that always remind us about their refugee, like, you know, journey, like, you know, we had to go through this and that, you know, and it all sounds like very, I can tell they were frightened, um, and I almost lost sense of hope, and I, and sometimes I go back and think about what if, what would life be like if I, you know, live, if I actually was born, you know, not in the United States, but in my parents' home country, like, how would that look like for me? Like, would I still be alive, you know? So uh, I'm really thankful that we were able to get to the United States. But I, I feel like people shouldn't be scared uh, by refugees or be threatened by that because they have stories to, sh- you know, to, to share and we should all listen. My uncle, he was a soldier during the war. So he helped, like, he assisted, like, the United States um, so this is like during the Vietnam War, where um, the CIA recorded, sorry, the CIA recruited Hmong people to you know help them fight in the war. So um, my uncle is actually one of them. And after you know Saigon fell, um, 
you know, since my uncle was, you know, the soldier, like he was offered to continue at States. And then my parent, my, all my dad and his siblings like were all like <laughs> running around, like trying to find you know, a safe space. And cause, uh, and then because my dad was the youngest, my uncle sponsored him to come to the United States. So that's how we got here. And, but like my parents didn't become, um, they didn't become naturalized uh, U.S. citizens until I believe last year. Um, and yeah, they've been here for like almost 30 years, but it took them a very long time because, you know, um, they weren't sure how the naturalization process worked. And, you know, it's really, if, if you know the naturalization, oh, sorry, if you know the naturalization process, like I personally, I, I feel like it's complicated and um, not fair. Uh, for example, my parents, like, they've been here for over 30 years, but um, their English is still not fluent. And, you know, I, I feel like families like that, they have their own reasons, you know. Like, for example, my parents, they went to school, you know, to learn English, and they did pick up a few English here and there. But, like, because um, they have, like, my older sister, my older brother, you know, uh, and they were trying to pay their rent and stuff. Like, they dropped off the school so that they can go work at companies, like, from, like, 12 hours each day, seven days a week, just so that they can put food on the table. And it was, like, low-wage, low-paying wage jobs, too. So, yeah. The reason why Hmong people, you know, uh, came to the United States because as refugees is because you know Hmong people and this is something I also feel like should be in the textbooks or history when you know we talk about U.S. involvement in like the Vietnam War because uh, we were involved with that not directly with the Vietnam War but like um, the secret war in Laos which is related to that um, I feel like that history gets left out and not a lot of people know about how how big of a risk that our people like took um to fight along you know united states soldiers you know to to battle um against communism and you know when we come here my parents come here and you know uh and other more parents who come here to us refugees and who you know may have fought in the war or maybe their relatives fought in the war too and and then to be disrespected um just because they cannot speak english well or maybe they hold like a um you know a certain lifestyle or or jobs out that you know people look down upon it I feel like that's it's it shouldn't be happening and that's very unfair and uh, it's just plain ignorance you know I, I feel like um, it's really important to know understand um, someone's story before you judge them by the cover leading a student organization as a child of two refugees story produced by Cole Tunningley I'm Daniel Rizal, and this is the Undercurrent Impact 89FM's weekly news and storytelling program. We're going in the dark today with our stories, including our next and final one. Full disclosure, this was originally done for a class project of mine and given with permission to air here. It's how two events, a massive blackout in the 1960s and a Bob Dylan song, are connected. It's November 9, 1965. Dan Ingram is DJing at WABC for his afternoon shift. As he spins a vinyl record for New York City, he notices the player starts to slow down. He gets on the microphone. 
hold it, and you're going too slow, fella. Pick up the speed. Much better. The issue persists, and even the radio jingles begin to flutter. It's 46 degrees and it's clear, dude. There's a man called Adam, old man Adam. He puts on another record, and he notices the studio lights are starting to dim. The lights are dimming in the studio. You wouldn't believe what's going on in the studio, folks. The lights are getting dim. The electricity is slowing down. I didn't know that could happen. Neither did the 30 million people who were about to lose their electricity. As Mr. Ingram breaks for a newsreel, the station power continues to drop before becoming just a hum. Then, silence. It's approximately 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Areas of New York, New Jersey, Ontario, and more were experiencing what would become known as the Northeast Blackout of 1965. The cause was just human error at a station in Ontario, a safety relay was set far too low for the winter demands of heat and lighting in the nearby metropolitan areas, but that wasn't known at the time. Some had power restored just a few hours later, while some areas of New York City waited 13 hours. Good evening. The northeastern United States tonight suffered its worst electric power failure in history. In the next few minutes, we hope to tell you in detail what happened and to pass on what little is known about why it happened. Operating with mobile equipment and using candles as a source of light, NBC was determined to have breaking coverage of the blackout, even if many of their local viewers couldn't even turn on a TV. You're hearing Robert Abernathy, Washington correspondent. At the height of the blackout in Boston, a riot broke out at the Massachusetts State Prison in Walpole nearby. Between two and 300 inmates, more than half the population, broke out of their cells in the maximum security section of the prison and roamed the cell blocks, smashing windows, tables, and chairs. Early reports of looting in New York City began to come in. Police ordered anti-aircraft searchlights set up to flood Grand Central Station, Times Square, and other parts of New York, moving from building to building at a 45-degree angle, trying to spot any possible looters. But the next day, Mayor Robert Wagner held a press conference. Last night is history. Our hope and our prayer is to avoid a repetition of this history. As recorded by WNYC, crime had actually gone down during the blackout. With the city plunged into utter darkness, with the police employed on many rescue duties and functions, including emergency traffic direction in the absence of all traffic lights, there were nevertheless fewer muggings, robberies, and housebreakings and crimes of violence than on an ordinary night. There was some minor looting, but it was almost insignificant in the whole crime picture, a picture of the city at its most law-abiding. You can hear him mentioning that traffic lights were out. The night before, back at NBC, reporter Gabe Pressman witnessed the unusual scene before him. I toured Manhattan tonight in a, in a car for two hours immediately after the lights went out, and it was incredible, even frightening. A weird situation. The streets filled with hundreds of thousands of homeward-bound commuters. Their shadowy forms clustered on the sidewalks, the windows of skyscrapers dark, all traffic lights out, traffic jam bumper to bumper on major streets like Fifth and Madison Avenues, the headlights from automobiles, the only light. It was frightening at first, but only for a few minutes because 
Amazingly, New Yorkers adjusted very rapidly to the situation. Pressman would continue describing what he saw, really driving the surreal nature of it all. NBC didn't have the power needed to process the film that was being gathered, so oral accounts became a necessity. This has been a fantasy, a kind of dream situation, and it, it was hard for people to be panicked by something that seemed hardly believable in the first place. One important light did not go out tonight, the torch on the Statue of Liberty. Standing lonely while all this was going on, a shaft of light in the waters just south of the darkened island of Manhattan. Beneath the city streets, the New York Times would later report that 800,000 passengers were trapped inside of subways. The paper also reported major Broadway productions were shut down. However, smaller venues kept going. At Theater East, performers acted under a searchlight to a crowd of only seven people and two dogs. Cheryl Tippins would later write a similar history in her 2013 book, Inside the Dream Palace, The Life and Times of New York's Legendary Chelsea Hotel. In its wake, newspapers around the world reported on the medieval, carnival-like atmosphere that had taken over the city of New York during those moonlit hours. Young men selling candles on a patch of pavement near Astor Place, subway riders trapped in trains, visitors to St. Patrick's Cathedral warming their hands over vigil candles, Bergdorf's employees dancing out of the store hand in hand. Over in the Chelsea Hotel, a 24-year-old Bob Dylan is with his girlfriend, now working on his next set of songs. Again, from Miss Tippin's book on the hotel. The Chelsea's thick walls had been built to protect a poet who was contemplating his fate, asking the question with the music of an ancient folk song running through his head, sad-eyed lady, should I wait? He took his time. In that paragraph, she's referring to sad-eyed lady of the lowlands, an 11-minute song that closed what would become Dylan's next LP, Blonde on Blonde. The hotel would be the birthplace of many popular songs from the musician, but only one drew so heavily from the Northeast blackout on November 9, 1965. It's November 30, three weeks after the blackout. Dylan has most of the lyrics worked out for the song he's about to record, Visions of Johanna. But the music isn't there yet as the band kicks off their first take. Ain't it just like the night to play tricks when you're trying to be so quiet? You're hearing this all right now on The Undercurrent. If you'd like to catch the second half of that story I produced featuring a plethora of Dylan's studio work and connections to the blackout, we'll have a link up on our website. And we'll hear from you next week. That's it for this week's show. I've been your host, Cole Tunningly, and it's been an absolute delight. I'd like to thank our general manager, Jeremy Whiting, our station manager, Olivia Mitchell, and our programming director, Simon Fenzi. I'd also like to thank Sophie Sagan for her work on this episode. And I'd also, also like to thank you, the listener. Maybe I'll see you next week. I'll be here, same time, same place. Goodbye.